Amen. Let's take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. I will attempt to explain everything that John has said the past two weeks. And He's uh, not here today, right? That's good. All right. I felt all this pressure. He kept saying, Craig's going to get up in a week and he's going to explain this. He's going to explain this. I'm like, John, stop. (laughs) James chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 14, read through the end of the, the chapter. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There are admittedly some complexities in this passage, for sure. But at the same time, the gist of this passage is incredibly simple. James is saying, you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, live like it. End of story. Let's close our Bibles and be dismissed. That's it. He addresses these people who are making claims of Christianity. False claims are part of our world, right? Here's a few of them. It's a 2014 ad by uh, the Nissan Frontier. This ad, this commercial, showed it pushing a dune buggy up a hill, something it is completely incapable of doing. And they demonstrated that, and Nissan had to send out an apology and a retraction that our truck actually cannot do that. It was a false claim. Mini Wheats, the Kellogg company, claimed frosted mini wheats improved children's attentiveness by 20%. All the children workers are going, feed your kids mini wheats before you send them. But, shocking, I know, attentiveness did not increase. <laughs> As much as promised in the vast majority of children who ate the cereal, Kellogg's agreed to a $4 million settlement to stop using the ads. Wouldn't that have been great, though? Like all these drugs that we give our kids to make them pay attention? Like, just feed them a $4 box of mini wheats and it'll take care of it. Cigarettes. This is, this is great. Not cigarettes, they're not great. 
What is he preaching? A 1946 advertisement for Camel cigarettes claimed that doctors preferred the brand. And supposedly independent survey, which was revealed to have been conducted by an agency using suspect methods, you think? The cigarette commercial showed actors dressed as doctors puffing on cigarettes between house calls. Right? You see Justin Reith puffing on a cigarette as walking through the halls of Spectrum? Probably not. Um, I asked Phil. Phil was in here at the first service. Phil Paris, one of our doctors, and he, he agreed that most doctors would not smoke cigarettes. A false claim. Snapchat claimed that messages sent on the app would disappear, yet third-party apps can save the messages indefinitely. Snapchat was required to notify users that messages could actually be saved. False claim. The German car maker Volkswagen claimed its diesel cars were environmentally friendly when in fact Volkswagen vehicles were rigged to cheat emissions tests. The company has so far paid out billions in settlements for the scandal. And the person who claims to be a Christian yet shows no outward evidence or his or her faith claim. Asked to wrestle with the question this morning, am I making a false claim? So James is asking us to consider. And he gets us to consider it by starting here with two questions that aren't really questions. James is using the questions like many New Testament writers do. Uh, they're rhetorical. They're making a point. He's actually making a statement with his question. Question number one, what good is it if someone says they have faith but not have works? Here's the key part of that question. If someone says, this is a key statement in James' argument. This is a faith claim. This is somebody saying, I am a Christian. I pray to prayer to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Let's cut right to the point, and this is James' argument. If you say this but there's no growth, no fruit, no outward expressions of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, then the claim is most likely an empty one. And make sure you understand the nuance here. The claim of faith is not the same as faith. James does not say if someone has faith but doesn't have works. He says if someone claims to have faith, because his argument is this, if you truly have faith, you will have works. So he's talking to the person who claims to have faith but doesn't have works. And we understand how this goes, right? I would say, I love my wife. I love Kathy. I'd say that to you. But if I'm not serving her, spending time with her, if I'm not being nice to her, right? The whole back thing, if I'm going, well, Kath, hated that your back hurts today. Have fun carrying all those laundry baskets upstairs. I'm going to play golf with Dan Austin, so I'll see you later. Right? If I'm hanging out with other women, <laughs> you would probably say, I don't believe you when you say you love your wife. And you would be correct to question that, Right? Because the way I'm conducting myself with her in no way backs up, backs up the claim that I, I love my wife. James goes on with a second question statement. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. It cannot. 
Because a faith without any outward manifestation is not the saving faith that Jesus and Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers proclaim. Faith without action shows that one's faith and trust is not truly in Christ. And here's why. Because Christ is so significant and so profound and his presence in my life and the presence of his spirit in my life is so powerful and profound. It cannot possess me and not make a difference. Just by nature of who he is and nature of who his spirit is. If he is truly indwelling me, it will make a difference. I have found that as I have gotten older, when I, when I was in college, I, I could tank a Mountain Dew at midnight and go right to bed and be fine. I could probably drink two, three Mountain Dews at midnight and be fine. Now that I'm like getting close to fit, like if I drink a Mountain Dew anytime after 1 p.m., <laughs> I'm not sleeping, right? I mean, do I have a witness? Does anyone else? All right. I mean, you know, I drink that thing and I'm like laying awake. Why? I mean, Mountain Dew, that, that's a... That's a shot, man, right? That's a sugar caffeine shot. I can't put that inside of me in the evening and it not have an effect. It, it, it's, it's quite simple. Cause, effect. You put Mountain Dew in at 7 p.m., you're not sleeping. Not to be crass, but Jesus' spirit is kind of like dew. I, I can't have it inside of me and have it not affect me can't just by nature of what it is who he is the illustration that james uses here leads his audience to the clear answer to his questions he presents a scenario where a brother or sister uh, is in need of food or clothing they're poor and another in the community presumably someone with the means to help this person sees this need of their poor brother or sister and they offer this help oh I am so sorry. That must be so hard. Bless you. Be warmed and filled. I'll even pray for you tonight. Hope that helps. And walks away. <laughs> Person's like, I'm still hungry. <laughs> still don't have a place to sleep tonight. Right? It, that's worthless sentiment. It accomplishes nothing. Again, be like this past Thursday night, I went to Grand Rapids Christian and watched Forest Hill Central played on it. Noah was playing, Noah Burris, so I went down to watch him play. And I severely underestimated it's, it's, the weather plays with us this time of year, right? It had been pretty warm, and, and I work inside most of the day. So I, I severely underestimated how cool it was going to get after the sun went down. So I'm just in a pair of uh, Adidas warm up pants and a hooded sweatshirt. That was it. About halfway through the first half, I'm like, I don't know how I'm sitting here the rest of the game. Like, I am freezing. And she, now, fortunately, Jeff and Sherry showed up, and, and that distracted me the rest of the time when Jeff and I talked. So it was great. But, uh, but I was freezing. So I imagined, you know, I got home, and, and uh, Kathy was asking me about the game. I'm like, you would have hated it. Because anything below 80 degrees for Kathy is winter, right? Um, and so I was picturing this. I'm like, picturing Kathy and I sitting at this game. And say, say you know, we got there separately. So I, I bring two blankets from my car with me. And I'm sitting on the bleachers with them beside me. And Kathy sits down. And, you know, the, the, the half starts. It's a little, a little chilly. So I take the one blanket and put it around me. And me, meanwhile, Kathy's over here just like, you know, just shivering. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry you're cold, you know. And, and I just keep sitting here with my blanket. And she's like, man, I, I wish you had a second blanket. I'm like, yeah, me too. And then I'm like, oh, I do have a second blanket. 
I'm going to wrap it around my legs so they're warm too. And I'm sitting there, you know, like, oh, okay, this isn't bad. She's freezing. And then I look at her, and I'm like, oh, Kath, I'm so sorry. You're so cold. I wish. Be warmed. Be warmed, Kathy. Be warmed. Bless you, Kathy. Let me pray for your warmth. <laughs> like, what a jerk. <laughs> like, that is completely worthless, right? Like, I'm doing nothing. It's a worthless sentiment. It's empty. James is like, that's what this faith is like. It's empty. It's a worthless faith. It accomplishes nothing. It is good for nothing. So, like the useless words offered to the poor person or offered to my poor freezing wife, a faith without works, a faith that is only words, is also worthless and empty. It does no good. It is useless sentiment. So James uses this now, and he uses repulsive imagery to describe it. And this would have been especially repulsive to a Jewish audience, given like their whole, you know, with dead people and the corpse and the uncleanliness that went along this. He says that kind of faith is a corpse, a rotting, dead corpse. It's gross, and it's meant to feel that way. It's not unlike Revelation chapter 3, right? The church of Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, right? This is gross. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Right? This church in Revelation was saying, we're fine, we're good. And John's saying, you're, you're gross. You're, you're poor, you're naked, you're wretched. James is saying the same thing. You, you, you make this claim of faith. You think you have this relationship with God, but you have no works. Your faith is, 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 is gross. It's a corpse. It's dead. And this illustration itself, I think, was intentional and meant to sting a little bit. This is where John was taking us the past couple weeks. It goes with what you know, we've, we've been seeing in, in James Legitimate faith is a doing faith. He says this in chapter 1. Legitimate faith at the end of chapter 1, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, practically shows itself by caring for others. Last week, John talked about uh, not showing partiality, valuing people. I think this illustration was meant to sting a little bit, a reminder that you are not showing true Christian faith because it's not practically manifesting itself. Belief alone does not indicate true saving faith. An objection is reintroduced. James and the New Testament writers, Paul does this a couple times. He raises this imaginary objector, who's not really an imaginary objector because this was the kind of thing he was dealing with. But he he pretends he's having this conversation. And this person kind of stands up in this conversation and says, hey, James, come on. You have faith. I have works. You have works. I have faith. Big deal. Whatever. Tomato, tomato. Not a big deal. Faith and works can be separated, and it's fine. They could be two separate entities. It's fine. James comes out swinging at the, verse, at the end of verse 18. He attacks their actionless faith. He says, you cannot show me your faith because you don't have works. It's an invisible thing. You can't show it. I, on the other hand, can show you that I have faith because you can see it in my everyday life. The nuance here is James saying this. You say you have proof? 
You say you have faith? Prove it. Show me. You can't because your faith's not real. There was a girl. Usually stories that start with that statement don't end well, and this one doesn't. When I was in elementary school, Jenny was her name. This is like second grade, right? So no threat to Kathy here. You're like, wait, you just talked about this. No, this is a... <laughs> and, uh, and Jenny was like, all the boys in second grade had a crush on Jenny. And my, my main rival for Jenny's affection was Jason Vasquez. And like any good New England kid, Jenny loved baseball. You just do when you grow up in New England because of the Red Sox, and it's like this disease that you all get when you drink the water there. And so, loved baseball. One thing Jason had that I did not, Jason played Little League Baseball, and I didn't. She was really impressed by baseball players. So, Jason, we'd come in, and Jason would talk about his baseball game, and she's like, oh. So what did I do? I did what any great second grade boy would do, trying to impress. I lied. I said, I play baseball. And I'd like make up stories. And I wasn't very good at it, making up the stories. And Jenny had divine wisdom. Because I'll never forget the day she looked at me and she's like, I don't think you play baseball. Because you like, when you're talking about it, like, it's like you do, you're making it up. I'm like, <gasps> like that, was, that was crushing. She like figured me out. But right, she was able to tell, you're not real. I could tell you're not real. Because the score changed three times in the past, like every time you say it. You, know, you could tell. There's no evidence. You can't back up your claim that you're a baseball player. That's what James is saying here in this argument. You can't back up your claim that you're a Christian. You, there, there's nothing. There's inconsistencies. There's, there's things that don't match up. I can prove it. Right? Is your faith actionless? Does that describe you? He goes on. He attacks their empty doctrinal and theological affirmations. One of the most dangerous assumptions we can have is that knowledge equates to authentic faith. Well, I know a lot about God and the Bible, so I must be a Christian. James completely shatters that. He asks this question, you believe that God is one? Remember he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Does anyone understand the significance of that question? Do you believe that God is one? Why would that be significant to Jewish ears? It's the Shema. This is the foundational creedal statement of, of the Jewish faith. Believe the Lord God is one. This is the foundational statement that they would say. Deuteronomy 6.4 is where we find it. First, it's mentioned again in Mark 12 and in Romans 3. James' point is this, that even the most foundational, serious confession of their belief is not enough. He's almost sarcastic here. Oh, you believe that God is one? Good. Good. That's great. Good for you. You do well. You know what? Even the demons believe that. Ever think about it? There are no atheist demons. (laughs) There isn't one. They're all monotheists who confess orthodoxy about the nature of God. In fact, it's so real to them that they even tremble. And I think what we're seeing is, James, I I think, is maybe even making a point. He's like, even the demons believe, and they tremble. And I think this is a jab. I guess going, which is a lot more than some of you are doing in response to who God is. 
These are demons, and at least they have some kind of a response. You, you, you have nothing. Even the demons believe. Demons have a knowledge of the spiritual realm that we do not. But that knowledge does not translate into saving faith. Why? Because they have not bowed the knee in obedience to King Jesus. They have rebelled. People can have a knowledge of God and still not live a life of obedience. And this is what characterizes dead faith. One theologian put it this way, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. It's good to have great theology, but it's also necessary that that good theology possesses us, makes a difference in our life, changes us. There's a lot of other examples we could go to in Scripture. We won't take the time to look at it, but people who claimed faith. You remember Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8 who makes a faith claim and then proves that it's, it's nothing. Um, Saul, many of the Old Testament kings, had a knowledge of God, but their life played out, and it's seen that they do not really love God. The Pharisees had deep knowledge of God. They knew Scripture better than anyone in this room probably ever will. However, Jesus made it very clear that they were lost. You see the condemnation of the prophets throughout Israel's history. People like Isaiah, there's a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, look, he's he's speaking on behalf of God saying, "I, I see your sacrifices, I see your piety, I see your presence in the temple, I hear you singing these songs of praise. Stop it because it disgusts me. Just don't do it. It's a terrible stench in my nostrils. Just go, don't even, don't bother with it because your hearts are far from me. People who are making faith claims and not living it out John the Baptist faced this again, the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, he calls them, produce works in keeping with repentance. You're just whitewashed sepulchers. You know a lot about the Bible. You make a show. You show up every Sunday morning, whatever. But there's no works in your life that prove that that faith is real. He regards these opponents who are questioning the difference, uh, who are saying you can have faith and work separately. He, he says to them, you foolish person. You vain person, depending on what translates. It's a play on words. It means empty. It's the same terminology he's using about the faith. Empty person, empty faith. You foolish person. So he goes on, then, and he addresses this person. He says, you want to know how faith is supposed to work? Foolish person. Let me show you the connection between faith and works. True faith is validated by works. So to make his case against this foolish opponent who doesn't think faith and works need to be connected, James gives two significant examples from Israel history. Abraham and Rahab. One is a man, Abraham, the great patriarch of the nation of Israel, and the other is a Gentile woman who happened to be a prostitute. A point, by the way, James is very intentional about making, verse 25. Rahab, a prostitute, just in case we forget. I want you to to understand how I'm talking about here. So let's talk about Abraham in a minute. James references one of the greatest stories in Israel's history from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 in his argument here. And we don't have the time to to turn there and read it, but you, you remember the story in Genesis 22, right? God says to Abraham... I want you to take your son. 
And God drives this home. If you read the passage carefully, it's like God is almost like twisting the dagger. I want you to take your son, your only son, the one that you love. Like, God, stop it. I get it. I know who you're talking about. No, your son, your only one, the one you love, that one. I want you to take him. I want you to kill him. It's a sacrifice to show that you're dedicated to me. And you know the story, right? Abraham takes Isaac, and, and they, they gather together everything, and he goes with his people, and they go to the base of Mount Moriah, and he tells his, 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 his caravan, you stay here. And he takes Isaac up the mountain, and there's that, that heartbreaking question from Isaac, Dad, we have everything we need, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide a lamb. And Abraham continues to follow through. Abraham takes his son, and he binds him. There's actually a term for this in Judaism. It's called the binding. It's, it's so significant what Abraham does. He, he, he binds his son, but he doesn't stop there. He lays his son on the altar, but he doesn't stop there. He takes his dagger out, and he raises his dagger above his son. And as he's about to put it down through his son's heart, demonstrating his love and commitment to his God, he starts to plunge, and the angel of the Lord catches his arm and says, Stop. And what God says next is fascinating. It goes with Abraham's point here. Now I know you fear me. There's a ram over there. Don't kill your son. Kill that instead. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you love me. This is the part of the sermon (laughs) where you could really dive into the weeds. And the theological part of me was like, oh, we could spend a lot of time here. Because Abraham goes on, and he's, or Abraham, James goes on, and he states this relationship between faith and work so strongly that it almost bothers us a little bit, the way it, he says it. Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. And he goes on in verse 24, and he says, in an unapologetic, unequivocal, direct statement, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wait a minute, James, time out. That is not what Paul says. What are you talking about? We say by, by grace alone, not of works. We quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It gets more confusing because in Romans 4, when Paul's presenting his argument about uh, non-works-based right, uh, righteousness, that it's by faith alone, you know what Old Testament figure he uses as an example to make his point? Abraham. Like, stop it. <laughs> right? It's just, James uses Abraham to say that works. Paul uses Abraham to say faith. What are these guys doing? Do they not agree? We could spend a lot of time on this. What is James doing here? Allow me just to simplify it, and if you're still confused afterwards, ask John. (laughs) You're getting all this down, Megan? All right, thanks, Senna. I'll say it this way. This is a superficial contradiction. Theologian Doug Moo says this, Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. 
Or Ken Hughes says, Paul says works can't bring us to Christ. James says after we come to Christ, they are imperative. So here's the deal. James is not contrasting two different approaches to God. That's what Paul was fighting against. Faith and works. The, the, old, the, the Jews that he was dealing with were saying, you have to obey the law in order to be Christians. That's the right approach to God. And Paul's saying, no, the right approach to God is, is humbly through, through faith, grace alone. James isn't dealing with that. James isn't dealing with that. James is simply contrasting two kinds of faith, dead versus authentic. I don't want to oversimplify it, but here's the bottom line. Paul and James are addressing two very different theological issues and are simply using the word justify differently. And we generally default to Paul's understanding of it, but James is just using it differently. And we understand what this is. We do this all the time, right? If I were to say, it's hot in here, right? you understand it a certain way. If I were to say, Kathy is hot, I just use the same word, but used it differently. And if I say, I'm in hot water now because I said Kathy was hot in a church service, uh, that's another different way, right? Okay. Just used it three different ways. That's what they're doing. Paul, Paul is using justified in, in, in the legal sense, the acquittal sense, the declaration of righteousness. James is using it in a sense that means vindicated, proved, supported, Shown to be righteous. It's like this. We can talk about our favorite football teams. So we won't name. But if I were to say over and over again, my football team's better than yours. When our, my football team plays yours, it's going to beat yours. My football team has this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. It's going to beat you. We're better. We're going to do this. Guy's going to win the Heisman. We're going to, right? When they meet on the field, my team beats yours. Which happens on occasion. All of that boasting all of those claims are justified he was right he's justified in his claims that's how james is using the word and you can see this really easily in the in 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 the example of abraham because we just said that right they both used abraham they both used examples from two very parts of abraham's life paul is referring to abraham before the law, before circumcision, because that's his point. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. So when God says that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that was apart from any works. Abraham hadn't even been circumcised yet. That's the argument Paul's making in Romans. The sacrifice of, of Isaac takes place way later down, down the line in Genesis 22. Abraham's justification is already in place. His legal standing before God is already in place. James is saying now it's validated. He's, he is justified in his claim, and he is truly justified before God because he was willing to sacrifice his son. His faith claim is vindicated. And you see this in Genesis 22, verse 12, when God says, now I know. Now I know. God, God knew Abraham's heart. But now for all time, Abraham stands as this great example. God says, now I know. Now I can declare this. Now this can be proclaimed for the, for the generations that Abraham feared me. And he showed it through the willingness to sacrifice his son. His faith is validated. His faith is justified. That's what we are after as followers of Jesus Christ, that our claim is validated, that what we say is justified. We don't have time to look at all these, but throughout Scripture, we see that this principle of faith and works, even in Paul, is so clearly there. Paul and James are in no way, shape, or form opposed to one another. Right here in the book of Romans, right at the beginning, Paul writes, For it is not those who hear the law 
who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? We, claim, we, we, we quoted 2, 8, and 9 earlier, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. We often leave verse 10 out of that. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved apart from works, but we are saved to good works. And Paul meshes the two together here beautifully in Ephesians 2. Romans 1, 5, he talks about the obedience that comes from faith, right? Active faith. 1 John 2, 4 through 6, here's another great example. The person who claims to know God, claims to love God, but doesn't have the works in their life, who doesn't obey, person is a liar. The truth is not truly in them. So it's the same thing. Throughout Scripture, we see this principle. Paul wraps it up with this, or I'm sorry, James wraps it up with this example of Rahab. And it's a great way to wrap this up. Rahab had no church background. She had no knowledge of this God. She was a prostitute, as James very clearly points out. She was a Canaanite, and she's chosen alongside the great patriarch Abraham to demonstrate true, authentic faith. Why? I think part of what's going on here is this. James is demonstrating that this type of life and this type of faith is possible for everyone. A Gentile prostitute is able to live out this kind of faith. She acted on what she heard about what happened in Egypt. At some point in her life, upon hearing the accounts from Egypt, she believed in the God of Hebrews. But unlike everyone else there in Jericho, she demonstrated her faith by aiding the spies. Check out her confession in Joshua chapter, chapter, somewhere. (laughs) Totally lost my place. Joshua chapter 2. I know, this is Rahab, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Notice this is all plural. They all believe the stories. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Right? Even the demons believe. We've all heard this. We all believe. We all fear this God. But later on in the chapter, there was only one person who actually acted on it, and that was Rahab. So she let them, the spies, down by a rope through the window for the the house she lived was in part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. This woman put her life at risk. Her faith was active. Unlike the rest in Jericho, she said, I'm not just going to believe this. I'm not just going to articulate. I'm going to demonstrate a faith in this God. We tend to shy away from this conversation about faith and works, I think sometimes because we're afraid it sounds too Catholic. However, it's a necessary conversation, and really I think the reason why we don't like it isn't because we honestly have this deep theological concern. I think it's because we just don't want to feel uncomfortable and be forced to change, to make our life match what we say we are. 
So the question I have for you this morning is, is there a chasm between your actions and your profession? Because if there is, you may need to evaluate the reality of your faith today, and you may need to bow the knee and submit your life to Christ and say, I'm not a follower of Christ. Truly, the Spirit does not dwell in me. Another point of application here, listen, this, your faith and the activity of your faith doesn't have to be as big as Abraham's or Rahab's. A phone call to someone who's hurting, an anonymous gift, reaching out to the lonely, helping with people with special needs, taking a meal when a meal sign up comes up to a new mom, showing up to a shower for a new mom, watching someone's kids so they can go, go out on a date because their life has been really hard, and, and handing out gift cards anonymously, doing things like this are ways that we can show our faith. A couple weeks ago, a guy who teaches in our night class, my son is in, comes to my house, Dan. Dan's a little older. Not real old, but he's older, older guy. Comes to my house. He takes this little boy out, frosty boy. Gets him Superman ice cream. Like, that's it, you're in. Takes him to a park and plays with him. You know what Tyler talked about all night? Mr. Dan. Just came and picked up a little special needs boy. Spent time with him. It's not that hard. To show the reality of our faith. Signing up to go hang out with kids from Olivia's Gift for an hour on a Thursday night. Really? I don't have time for that. Not taking the time to stop and talk to someone who I know is struggling because I'm too busy to get home. Got to get home, and watch a football game, or whatever. It's possible. I understand this too that works, obedience, striving for holiness is not legalism. I get so sick of hearing that. It's legalistic. You're not, you're not even using the word correctly. You don't even know what the word means. It's not legalism to hold ourselves to high standards. It's not legalism to seek to look like Jesus. Does this mean we have to be perfect? No. And here's the beauty of the illustrations that James uses. Abraham and Rahab both, they were in highly imperfect people. The whole Ishmael incident. <laughs> Abraham messed up pretty bad, and yet he still held up. It tells Rahab, a prostitute. Imperfect people. God's not calling us to be perfect. You don't have to say, I'm not perfect, so my faith's not real. That is not James' intent here. Listen, if you've seen growth, the overall pattern trajectory of your life is growth, that's, that's good. If you're one of these people who've come over the months to my office or Jeff's office and said, I'm struggling with this. This is a struggle in my life, and I'm having a hard time with it. You know what? That's evidence that there's something going on. The presence of the struggle is not condemning you. Coming and asking for help, that's evidence. You're going to continue to struggle. So don't, don't put that pressure on yourself. It's not like trying harder to try to be perfect, but it's not, I'm going to just try to kill my sin. I'm going to try to do something about it. I'm going to have him play about four minutes of a song here, and we'll be done. It's by Jimmy Needham. I think I've used it before. He's just calling us to an act of faith. We can claim all we want to. We can sing all we want to, and we can still get it wrong when it comes to what authentic faith is.